Hi there, my name's Dave and I've got the privilege of spending a little bit of time with you now looking at Psalm 61. If you've been enjoying worship with us this morning, then a very warm welcome to you. And likewise, if you're tuning in later on, maybe catching up with the talks, it's brilliant to have you here with us. In some ways, this is a little bit of a bittersweet moment as we come to the end of a four-part look at the Psalms. In the world around us, there's a lot of headlines at the moment, there's a lot of speculation, and there's a lot that's unknown. I'm recording this talk just as the lockdown in the UK has been loosened slightly, and uh, this week the UK went into complete overdrive as everyone tried to work out exactly what it might mean for them. For me personally, I can't really see that too much has changed, except that I'm allowed to go fishing again. Yay! Unfortunately, along with about 10 million other people who've just taken up fishing as a hobby. Football is no more, but now golf and fishing are the key sports that everyone wants to do. Who could have predicted that a few months ago? Anyway, with all these uh, moving sands and changing headlines, it felt like it was a really important time in the life of the church to uh, sit back with some of the timeless truths of scripture, to let it fill us, to let it encourage us, to let it empower us so that we're built up to face the situations that we're in. In some parts of the world, there might be danger of hurricanes or twisters or typhoons and many homes are equipped with a sort of shelter or a safe room where people can go for refuge in extreme conditions. God is our refuge and we draw close to him through his word and that is the Bible. So today I find it a massive privilege to open the book together and to once more ask God to speak to us through these timeless words. And again, the structure and the context of this psalm gives us an insight into its meaning and its message. The first four verses seem to sit with one strand of thinking. And then in the text, there's this word, sailor, and then the focus becomes the king. So there's two blocks of four verses. They're joined, but they're separate. And there are other bits of context that will really help us to dig into this psalm. The timing of when it was written and also how it was meant to be used. And you can see in the introduction, that's pretty clear, for the director of music with stringed instruments. This psalm is to be sung in the temple with the backing of the stringed instruments. Now, I wish that I was one of those really talented people who could say, and the Lord just really put it on my heart as I was preparing, and then I get out my guitar, and uh, I strike up a few chords, and, uh, and then I start singing it to you but I'm just not that person. Despite being Welsh, that bit of the gene pool where you get a tremendous singing voice, that has just skipped me by. So you're just gonna have to imagine that. Or after I finish speaking, you can search for Psalm 61 on YouTube and look what all the talented people have done with it. It's likely that David wrote it for himself at the time and then later it was adapted and it was set to music for the benefit of other people. And what I find fascinating about that is that it's such a personal psalm, it's such a, a kind of a personal response, and yet it's intended for collective worship. It's his own worship in, in his own situation, but now it's set out for others to sing. 
Now, now, don't get me wrong, I think there can be a danger if all of our worship songs are really me-centred and it becomes about us and our needs rather than God and his glory. But at the same time, David seems quite content to merge the two in this psalm with no harm done to either. In fact, you could argue that it's seeing the glory of God in his circumstances that give this such power. He manages to weave both the honesty of his own position with the glory of God's position, and that just seems to lift him up out of his. And how God reaches him in his circumstances is then going to become part of their worship together in the future. And I, I think even just before we start, that's worth just sort of taking a bit of time to consider. That is amazing. Can we believe, can we dare to believe that God in us and through us in these days will become part of what we worship him for moving forwards. I think worship leaders are going to struggle to find something spiritual that rhymes with coronavirus or global pandemic, but the race is on for the first COVID-19 worship song. Now that might sound a little bit flippant, but it is a really serious point that in the dark days, what he learns becomes part of his worship in the good days. There's something about God's economy here where a bad situation seems to be uh, become part of what's good going forward because of what God has done within it. So with all that in mind, then what situation was he writing from? Well, with several Psalms in this period, we take the writer to be David and the timing is most likely to be a, temp uh, a period of temporary exile after his son Absalom rebelled against him. You can read about that in 2 Samuel 15 uh, and, and onwards. It could be another time in his life with similar circumstances, but that is less likely. So in an instant, David goes from being king to having to leave Jerusalem, leave the area completely, cross back over the River Jordan and head off into the wilderness. His life gets turned totally upside down. The things that he knew have been completely taken away. He doesn't know what his future holds. Everything he's ever worked for, it just disappears overnight. He fears for his life and it's his own son who's caused it. So there's a deep sense of personal betrayal. This isn't the psalm that he wrote sort of looking back with hindsight and seeing the goodness of God. No, this is David's heart cry as he worships in the wilderness. So this is a psalm from the wilderness itself. This is his heart response in the midst of the challenges that he faced. So with all of that in mind, let's read together now. If you could open your Bibles with me as well, that would be great. And we're going to read from Psalm 61. For the director of music with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the ends of the earth I call to you. I call as my heart... I call as my heart grows faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the foe. I long to dwell in your tent forever and take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Sailor, for you, God, have heard my vows. You've given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Increase the days of the king's life, his years for many generations. May he be enthroned in God's presence forever. Appoint your love and faithfulness to protect him. Then I will ever sing in praise of your name and fulfil my vows day after day. This is an incredible 
incredible piece of scripture. So we start in the first half with his personal needs and he's praying for and he's praying about his own situation. Uh, presuming he's left Jerusalem, he's crossed the Jordan and he's gone away to the lands beyond. He really is at the ends of the land rather than the earth itself. But he might as well be. Whether you're sort of 50 miles or 500 miles away, it, it feels like the ends of the earth if you're separate from where you want to be. Especially if you don't have Zoom to catch up. It feels bad enough, like knowing that most of you guys watching this video are going to be within 15 miles or so of where I'm sitting. But we don't get to hang out like we used to. That feels isolating, even with all the ways of communicating that we still have. But David really is isolated. But the point here isn't where he is, but rather who he's calling out to. Hear my cry, O God. So he's in the wilderness and he's calling out to a God who hears. Not only is he at some sort of physical distance, feeling totally cut off, but he, he, he's uh, calling out as his heart grows faint. Now that's not a case of him like losing his faith or losing his perspective or lacking in confidence. That word here just means that he's feeling completely and totally overwhelmed. It's not that he's a coward or that he's weak, but it's just that he's starting to feel completely weighed down by it. And it's at that point that he calls out to God. I think I shared in my last message, there's been times in this period where I, I felt a little bit like that, to be honest, and, and I'm sure many of us have. And, and as he calls out to God, he does so. He, he reminds himself of four images of God that he's already familiar with. This isn't some sort of fresh revelation, some new truth that might help him, some sort of theological rabbit being pulled out of the hat to save the day. He's actually reminding himself of what he already knows. The rock, the tower, the tent, the wings. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Now the image of God being our rock is right the way through the history of the nation from the songs of Moses in Exodus 15 and also in Deuteronomy 32 verses 3 to 4. Let's just read those. I will proclaim the name of the Lord. Oh, praise the greatness of our God. He is the rock. His works are perfect and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just is he. So David is reminding himself of the promises to a previous generation. He's reminding himself of God's faithfulness to a previous leader. And this image of the rock is something that he explores time and time again in the Psalms. Psalm 18 from verse 1, I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress and my deliverer. My God is my rock in whom I take refuge. And you can't really read the Psalms and escape the truth that God is our rock. Jesus picks this up in Matthew 7 where he says that those who follow his teaching are building their house on the rock. The truth of God expressed through the ages and then through Jesus is a rock that we can build our life upon. And this might have a much more local outworking for David as well, because in the previous psalm, in Psalm 60, he's been talking about the Edomites and they had a fortress in the rock very similar to or possibly even the same as the modern day ancient uh, sorry the modern day city of Petra so David may even be asking for this sort of same level of protection as what his enemies get from their fortress 
in the rock. Or it could be that he's referring back to Jerusalem, which was a city built on a rather large rock. In those days, in terms of building materials, if you were attacked, wood burned, mud moved, but rock was secure. So whatever he's referring to, it's God who leads him to safety. Lord, lead me, for you have been my refuge, my safe place, the safe room in the house when, when everything, the storm starts, the place that I can come. A strong tower against the foe. In Psalm 48, he refers to Jerusalem, the city of God, their, their capital, his capital. And in verse 12, he talks of the towers of the citadel, this great strong fortress of Jerusalem. And he's now had to run away and he's had to escape it and leave it all behind. And that's an incredible sort of perspective because in the wilderness, he learns arguably the greatest lesson of all. God, you are my refuge. You are my strong tower, not, not the stuff back in Jerusalem that we built with our human hands, not, not the power that came from the position that you raised me up to, not the towers that I left behind when I fled for my life, that not, not the things I used to rely on for my safety. No, no, God, in the wilderness here, I have found that you are my strong tower, only you. Being with you, being in your presence in, in the tent. The tabernacle had been with the people on their travels, the place where the presence of God was. And Terry did a fantastic job in the previous psalm of explaining about the meaning of the tent. Psalm 15, it talks of this sacred tent, similar to them in importance as the holy mountain. This place of encounter with God himself. I long to dwell in your tent. And that definitely has a double meaning because not only is it to be in God's presence, but it actually refers to the place of worship back in Jerusalem. I long to be back there worshipping you, with you. And he longs for it forever. That gives a hint to us of eternity and the hope for eternity. It's not just that David's planning like a really, really long worship set. It's, it's actually that hope for eternity that we have. And this next one is just fascinating, to take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Is, is there a more beautiful picture of the love and care of God than that of a small chick nestling under the wings of its parent? We've got some ducklings on our local pond. They're really cute. They're so small, they're so vulnerable. Where, where do they go for protection? Underneath the wings. And this idea of God's wings, it's used in several Psalms. You can see it in 17, 36, 91, as, as this was an image that the people had ever since their time of Exodus and, and how God cared for them. And then Jesus himself uses a, a similar example in Luke 13. He talks of God loving people like a hen wanting to gather up the chicks and hold them under her wings. This sense of safety and security found in God. And then the psalm has got this really interesting word, sailor, and there's some discussion about what it actually means, but it's definitely a break point at, uh, of some sort whether that's within the musical direction for the instruments to play, or perhaps it's, it's a time of silence, it's a, it's a pause, it's a wait in proceedings. 
And there's an interesting point here, because if it is to stop and wait, how often do we sort of like, I don't know, kind of like finish worship and then rush off to the next thing? Or, or we stop praying and then we just rush off to the next thing? Do, do we sometimes just need to ha have that time of reaching out to and opening up to God and then to stop and to wait, to let, to let the music play and just reflect on what's being sung? And it's at this point of reflection, it's at this point of pause that we definitely see that the psalm moves in direction and it turns into prayer and it becomes about the kingship and it becomes about the national vision. Reminding himself of who God is and what God has promised stirs David about what God has done. What God has done is to give them the land and that land has the promises over it and that some of those promises and the really important ones are to David himself personally. So whereas verses one to four have been about the situation and his fears and the difficulties around it, David is now claiming the eternal promises of God over his life. They are still as radiantly true as ever, despite the current situation that he's in. So he's then praying, increased days, many generations, forever there's something absolutely permanent about the promises of God and they stand at such a sort of stark difference to the problems of the day and as, as he prays for the king he's also praying for the kingdom because the future of them both is so intertwined and, and it's written in a way so that other people could use it to pray for him in the future and in fact even when the nation did crumble and go into exile, these promises still stood firm. Psalm 61 still stands firm. The whole country found itself at the ends of the earth, as it were, and these words would have resonated even more than ever. And that period in their history was, was a, very much a time where this sense of national longing for a saviour, for a messiah, it really gained ground. And right here, in Psalm 61, there's this wonderful expression, may he be enthroned in God's presence forever. That had been the promise over David in 2 Samuel 7, but it was obviously, it wasn't going to be limited to his earthly life. There is a king who is going to be on the throne forever. The theologian Derek Kidner puts it this way when speaking of David's prayer, and I'm going to quote him directly. It was to be fulfilled to overflowing in the person of the king the Messiah. Through him, his people share the kingly blessings and can pray this magnificent blessing on their own behalf. And the New Testament writers pick, pick up this theme and they run with it, like in Ephesians 2.6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. There is a king who is on a throne. But what's really interesting about that is the best part of a thousand years before Jesus praying for a king to be enthroned in the presence of God forever. Without even knowing who Jesus was, the, the faith element of what he's praying is pointed towards Jesus. And that really makes me reflect on myself and I hope it will you too. What about us? Like we know so much more about Jesus. We've, we've seen what he's done in our lives. We're not, we're not sort of holding on to a kind of like, a distant national promise 
we know him. We've been marked by the Holy Spirit. We've experienced him in our lives. Jesus sits on that throne forever. He's actually there now and we can bring our circumstances and our situations to him and it changes everything. With all those things in mind then, I want to sort of bring this into a conclusion with some reflections from what I've said and things that we can take away and think about this coming week. Once again, this psalm is such a reminder to uh, almost help day by day live with the promises of God. Such an encouragement for us to remind ourselves of those promises again and again. But then also to pause and to let them sink in. It's like a, a reminder to bring the truth into our circumstances, not bringing our circumstances into our truth. There are lots of ways that each of us can apply that at the moment and into the future. What, what are we spending our time thinking about? What is the focus of our prayers? There is a king who is on the throne. David did go back to Jerusalem and he did go back to the tower and he did go back to the tent. But God used this wilderness experience for David to bring him closer to him. And having got used to the success and the, the life in the capital city, David was humbled and he drew closer to God. He was never the same person again. And that almost makes me want to pray like, Lord, can that be what happens to me in these days? Can that be what happens to us as a church during this time? Lord, would you help me to no longer put my faith in things made by human hands? You know, the, the gods of our age have taken one almighty beating in the last few weeks. Financial security, leisure time, foreign travel, material possessions, all those things are nice, but in the face of a crisis like this, they just turn to dust in your hands. They're worth nothing anymore. But the rock of the truth of who God is and what he's done and the good news of Jesus. It doesn't flinch, it doesn't change, it doesn't shake. It's so secure, it's so wonderful. So what are the lessons that we're learning during this time? Well, I think God's teaching me something about what it means to be part of a community. I think he's teaching me about what does it mean to outwork our faith and to uh, be reaching out encouraging, demonstrating love to other people and having an opportunity to, to talk about Jesus and to, give, to have a real sense of giving testimony of how amazing he is. It's also asking big questions about where our security is, where does our hope lie? And it's going to be really interesting to see and actually really exciting to see the lessons that God teaches us in this period that we can pick up and carry with us into the future. Even that sense of feeling like, you know, when there's almost like a big shaking going on, like this stuff's really important. We need to get going, we need to step out, time is short. There's an urgency to this thing. And a final perspective that I just wanna leave us with, although I've mentioned it several times already, we look to the king who's on the throne it sort of reminds me of the Sunday school story where the small child is asked a question and they say, well, I'm not even sure I understand the question, but I'm pretty sure the answer is Jesus. And uh, that's so true. 
Jesus was the answer to David's predicament then, a thousand years before, and he is for us now, 2,000 years later. That's 3,000 years of history and the answer's the same. He's our rock. The truth of his good news, the knowledge of his authority, the hope that he's coming back. It really is all about him. And 1,000 years beforehand, David hits a time of personal crisis, of real danger, real difficulty, the sense of it all being overwhelming and all just too much. And through worship and through declaring the truth, he points this giant big arrow to Jesus. And such a time later, that's what I hope I've managed to do in some small way as we've looked at this psalm together today. It really is about the Lord Jesus. Our hope is in him and it's, it's just such a wonderful thing. We'll never tire of telling the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that's blessed you in some small way. I look forward to hearing how you guys are doing and I pray God's protection on you this week.